My name's Tim, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> thank you, Copenhagen, for inviting me. Um, thank you, Jens, for, in particular, for um, asking me to speak. Thank you to everyone else on the committee who's made this possible. Um, thank you to the entire city for being such a beautiful and hospitable place. We've been shown nothing but kindness since we arrived. Um, and there was a great speak, a couple of great speakers yesterday, another great speaker today, and I feel there are some tough acts to follow. Um, I love the big book. Um, there are lines in it which are not often quoted, but I think are very important. And one of them is from the preface. Footnote, not everyone likes the stories in the back. I like the stories in the back. If you have a drinking problem, we hope that you may pause in reading one of the 42 personal stories and think, yes, that happened to me. Or more important, yes, I felt like that. Or most important, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. Um, I have no personal purpose in standing here tonight, but I have hope that something I say may reach one or two of you. If it does, marvelous. For everyone else, oh well. <laughs> um, one of the advantages of speaking after some other speakers is that, as I heard them tell their stories, I thought of all sorts of things I haven't thought of for very many years, little drinking stories, little sobriety stories. And I started thinking about my first experiences of alcohol. And my first experience of alcohol was not of my own drinking. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but Al-Anon really helps. Um, I wouldn't be here today, still in AA, <laughs> if it wasn't for Al-Anon. Uh, my first drinking experience was my brother's. Um, I was, I guess, nine or ten. Um, I didn't really know my brother uh, because he left home young because of his drinking. And he came to visit. Now, he never came to visit, but this time he came to visit. He could stand it for a couple of days. A few years later, I would identify with that, that I could just about stand being with my family for a couple of days, if I had a bottle. And so he came with, you know, a crate of whiskey. And I wasn't really allowed into the room, into the living room where he was because he was drinking from first thing in the morning. He was in his, his uh, 20s. And occasionally, I would walk past the room and see through the crack, and he'd be in there with the bottle of whiskey and the cigarettes, and the, the smell would, you know, like the smell when you op someone opens the door of a pub and this wall of warm, <coughs> moist, alcoholic, cigarette thug hits you. And this was unusual in our home. No one drank in my home. And I got to say hello to him for two seconds. When he arrived, I got to say goodbye to him for two seconds when he left. I never saw him again. Um, and a few months later, uh, we got news. There was a 
phone call. And there was a voice with a, a different accent saying that my brother had been found. And uh, I wasn't told what happened. I was just told he died, and he was ill, and he died. Um, but there's something about growing up in a home which is affected by alcoholism. You know things that no one has told you. And in my dreams, I saw him, and I saw in my dreams how he died, and I found out years later that was how he died. Um, and he committed, he was an alcoholic, he committed suicide. Um, around 10 years later, I'm back at my parents' house. I can stand it for a couple of days because all I asked for for Christmas was gin. And all they gave me was gin. And I drank, I drank a whole bottle of gin. It was Christmas Day, Boxing Day, sometime between Christmas and New Year. And it was the middle of the night, and I was writing letters to people. You know the letters when you wake up the next morning, and the handwriting at the beginning of the letter is perfectly clear, and at the end it's just canaletto waves. You doesn't mean anything. And of course, you can't send them the next morning. This was a long time before email, thank God. <laughs> Um, and when you've had a bottle of gin and you're bored and it's the middle of the night and it's the middle of nowhere and you have no transport and there is no one for miles around and you're locked inside your own thoughts, you go hunting around the house for something to entertain you. And I started rifling through some drawers and I found a folder. And in the photo, it was my brother's folder. Um, my mother burned everything. It's another thing that happens in alcoholic homes sometimes. Everything gets burnt on a periodic basis just to hide the evidence. She burnt everything, except she didn't find this folder. I don't know why she didn't find this folder. She, she, very thorough Al-Anon. But she didn't find this folder. It was a folder of my brother's notes from university. And interspersed with these notes were letters that he wrote in the middle of the night and never sent. Um, and I was startled by these letters because as I read them, the first thing I noticed was his handwriting was the same as mine. I'd never seen anything he'd written before, but his handwriting was the same as mine. Um, and he poured his heart out, just like people do in those 42 stories that are so often dismissed. Because they're not the first 164 pages. He poured his heart out. And he talked, Wayne talked about a volcano about to erupt. And he talked about this volcano inside him, and the only thing which stopped the volcano erupting was whiskey. And I knew what he meant. I'd never, I'd never heard anyone express why they drank. I knew I was an alcoholic from the age of 16 because when I first drank, I thought, this, well, this is the answer to all of my problems. I remember when I was 11, I'd never drunk at that point. My brother was dead by this time. 
I remember sitting on the sofa and turning my face to the sofa, the back of the sofa, and saying, whatever the world is, whatever it has to offer, I'm not interested anymore, you can keep it. I'm gonna stay turned to the wall. And I did, for years. I, wanted, I just did not want anything to do with you or the world. And then I found alcohol, and I was described at the age of 18 as having turned from a little old man at 14 to someone who'd grown into who they were meant to be. And that's what alcohol did for me. But by 21, I had no friends, I had no job, I had no money, I weighed seven stone. You can look on Google later on how many kilos that is, I have no idea, but it's not much. <laughs> like, a little over half what I weigh now. Um, everything was over, but I still had the bottle of gin. And I read these letters, and something inside me broke, because he, the thing that got me to break was there was a line at the end of one of them where he just made this flippant little off-the-hand comment to say, as if to say, none of that really matters. I'm fine, really. And I don't know why. I don't know why six weeks later I'd, had, I'd, I'd been trying to stop drinking for some time. I couldn't stop drinking on my own. I don't know why when I was walking through the hall in the house I lived in. I walked past the telephone table and it was two minutes past ten on a Sunday morning and I looked up in the yellow pages, alcohol. I don't know about anyone else, but I was fascinated by alcohol in every form. I would look it up randomly, trying to find out more about alcohol. I looked it up in the yellow pages and there was a number and I called the number and it was two minutes past ten. And because it was two minutes past 10 and the telephone office in London opened at 10 o'clock uh, and someone did service, someone said, hello, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I don't know why I phoned at two minutes past 10 and not two minutes to 10 and got an answer machine. I don't know why I found that file. I don't know why I was looking for that file, but my brother reached me by talking by telling the truth about his alcoholism. One alcoholic talking to another, that is all, that is all we can offer, I believe. And it doesn't sound much, but something happened that day. Um, many years later, I was at a meeting. Um, I, I guess I was 10 years sober. And there was a bloke with the same accent that I heard on the telephone when the policeman said, could I speak to your mother 20 years earlier? And I said, where are you from? And he named the town, and it was the town my brother died in. And I asked on the off chance if he knew him, if he'd been to AA, and he knew him straight away. And he said, yeah, he came to AA. This, this was back in the late, the late 70s, um, early 80s. He said, we knew him. He was around for a couple of years. He never got it, and then he disappeared. Um, so, you know, I was 12-stepped by someone who perhaps had no business 12-stepping anyone, but he 12-stepped me. My second 12-step experience was not very impressive either. Um, I went to a meeting, 
and there was a woman doing the chair. It was my first AA meeting. And there was a woman doing the chair who was three months sober. And I know there are meetings where they say, you, know, you need to do a step five before you can share. You need to be sponsoring people. You need to have a good message to carry. But she was very unhappy. She was very depressed, and she spoke honestly and openly about this. And I don't know about you, when I came to AA, I didn't skip into AA, I didn't dance into AA. I came into AA not knowing what to expect and thinking, if this doesn't work, it's the end because this planet is not built for someone like me. I have no skin. This planet is built for people with skin. I have, I have no way of getting through a single day here without a bottle of gin, and yet the gin won't take me where I need it to take me. If this doesn't work, nothing will. And there was a woman there who was miserable as anything, but she was three months sober. There were lots of pleasant people in the room. There were lots of serene people in the room, lots of sober people, people sober decades. I wasn't remotely interested in them because they were a different species. I like the woman who did the chair because I could identify with her. She was clearly as broken as I was, but she was three months sober. And hope comes in very strange forms. And I believe that God draws straight lines with broken pencils. And I'm the same broken pencil as I was when I came into AA. Um, all of the memories are still there. Everything that's ever happened to me is crystal clear in my mind. I'm still the same person, but I'm being used by a power greater than myself in ways I couldn't imagine. That's the great gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I came into my first meeting, and I knew I, knew I was... I, I didn't know why they placed me in the center of the room, and for the first time in my life, I felt safe. And I drank for another six months. I know that meetings strike a lot of people sober, but they didn't strike me sober. They worked for a very short period of time. Um, my drinking is dangerous. Um, my drinking nearly killed me on many occasions. I, I, right at the end of my drinking, I was living in Russia in the early 90s. Um, um, it was, very, it was a very dangerous city. It was a very dangerous city to be drunk and in blackout in. Um, but drinking isn't really my problem. Sobriety is my problem. Um, an image came to me during someone's talk yesterday. I don't know if any of you have seen the Lord of the Rings films, but there is a scene where one of the little hobbits gets hold of this crystal ball in which he sees these remarkable scenes from the future and things happening in other places. And this ball has immense power. And he's holding it. And he cannot let go of it. And it's killing him, but he cannot let go of it. And he cannot hear anyone else. He is totally captivated by this ball. And what alcohol did for me is it captivated me. And bit by bit, over the years, everything dropped away. My ability to have any kind of relationship with another person, my ability to understand what anyone else was going through, my connection with 
I, I grew up playing a lot of music. I couldn't play anymore because none of the notes made any sense. I could physically play, but no music came out. But there was still, I was trapped. And if you took that ball away from me, I was worse than I ever was before I drank. And, you know, there were times when I, I was living in rural Finland through one part of my drinking period. Um, and I was, I'd been struck sober by some bad experiences. And this will happen to alcoholics periodically. They'll be struck sober. And I was struck sober, and I used to play in the road, <laughs> hoping to get run over. I would sit in the middle of this busy highway, watching the cars go around me, thinking, I want to die, but I don't want it to look as though it's my fault. I want it to look like some weird accident. Um, I was like that, so I was always better drunk than I was sober, and that was my real problem. Drink was my solution. Um, I was told all sorts of amazing things when I first came to AA. I was told about the promises. You told me all of these amazing things that would happen to me. I didn't believe them because I'm not like you. <laughs> My sponsor's sponsor's sponsor says that if we could all have a banner that we could salute to, a, a, a banner, a, a theme tune we could all sing, it would run, but my case is different. But I got to a point in July 1993 when, um, and this is, I think, the loneliest place I can imagine being. Drink kept spitting me back out again. I couldn't, drink no longer took me where I needed it to take me for me to be okay. It no longer enabled me to go, oh. it just made me physically drunk. But I'd come to AA and I was no longer a no it was no longer a novelty and I was no longer the novelty. There were newer newcomers now. There were newer newcomers who were getting sober, who were clearly absorbing what was being offered, but I wasn't. I was drinking every few days, every few weeks, and I was just now the group drunk. And I was alone outside, I couldn't go back to my world outside AA, and AA wouldn't have me anymore, I thought. I was allowed to be there, it seemed. Um, people in my group said to other newcomers, don't talk to him, he keeps relapsing. <laughs> so you have to find the other people who are still relapsing. Um, but I got to a point in July 1993 when I started to really understand what my alcoholism meant. I knew that when I drank alcohol, I didn't know what was going to happen. That was pretty clear. That had been clear for many years. But there's a second part to step one. And it's the fact that stone cold sober, I will always return to a drink. I remember this particular day, I went to a meeting, I went to a lunchtime meeting, it was wonderful, I imagine. <laughs> it was an AA meeting, what could have been wrong with it? Um, I shared, very eloquently, I imagine. Um, I spent the whole time thinking, what am I going to say? Then I said it, and then I spent the rest of the time thinking, what did I say? How did it sound? And I left 10 minutes early. I was going to three meetings a day because meeting makers make it. I just did the quotation mark there for anyone listening on the tape. Um, and I was 
I knew that I wanted what you had, but I didn't believe it was available for me, but I was trying anyway. And I was walking up the road after the meeting, and I thought, I could, I could murder a pint of beer. And people talk about the insanity of alcoholism, and then they list all the terrible things they did when they were drunk. The insanity of alcoholism is um, knowing what happened to my brother, being around other people in AA, dying of alcoholism in front of me. People were having slips and dying in front of me. Yet I can leave a meeting where I said I'm an alcoholic and wanted to sign up to this amazing deal that you had. And yet, 20 minutes later, I'm walking up the road and I want to drink and there is nothing else in my mind. Just total blank. And I go and drink and I cause trouble. I drink a lot very, very quickly. I throw myself in front of a car. There's an accident, blah, blah, blah. I get arrested. And something in me broke again. My story is a story of breaking repeatedly. And I hope I keep breaking repeatedly because every time I break, the real me comes out more. And I broke that day and I said in my mind to AA, I don't care anymore about your precious promises. I know they're not for me, but I trust that if I just do as I'm told in AA, I can at least have the dignity of being sober. That's all I want is just the dignity of being sober and nothing else. And my head was hung that day. I didn't return to AA skipping. I didn't return glad because I'd had this great moment of understanding and insight. No, I came back broken and I said, just tell me what to do. And that was the 24th of July, 1993. And I haven't had a drink since then. And it's not because uh, I'm clever or smart or good. I have a couple of friends here from London and they can um, certify I'm not good. <laughs> I'm not even particularly nice. <laughs> I can be helpful sometimes, but nice, no. Um, so, you don't have to become good and nice and clever and all sorts of things to stay sober. You can be broken in all sorts of amazing ways that impress everyone um, and baffle professionals. I've baffled professionals and worried professionals. You shouldn't be worried. Um, and you can stay sober come what may. You can stay, if you're like me, I stayed sober through my father dying of lung cancer. I stayed sober through awful heartbreaks. I stayed sober through a very bad illness as well when I was many years sober. Um, I stayed sober through nervous breakdowns. I didn't get this program very quickly. I did enough over the first 15 years to not drink. I had a good solid crack at the AA program in a very traditional, very basic way but it didn't touch my core. And I found myself at 15 years sober, bumbling along. I was kind of okay. I was doing a lot better than most of my friends, so I thought, well, this is all AA has to offer. And people, I don't know about what AA is like here, but sometimes you'll go to meetings and people will say, life doesn't stop happening just because you're sober. And life is hard, but we have somewhere to come. Now, I'm not disputing 
those two statements. But my expectations were set very low for a long time. And I thought the fact that I was still having the occasional panic attack, the fact I was having problems in other areas. I was, a, a friend of mine says that he was doing stuff at 10 years sober that he wouldn't want filmed and sent to the general service office as an example of what 10 years sobriety and 100,000 AA meetings could do for you. <laughs> and that was me. I would I don't know if you've ever done this sober, but you emerge from places and you hope no one sees you coming out of there. Um, if you stay sober long enough, you'll find ways sober of treating the underlying spiritual malady. And they'll kill you if drink doesn't get you first. And I came across some people at 15 years sober who suggested that I'd never worked the steps. Now, I sponsored a number of people. I was kind of Mr. AA in my little home group anyway. Um, I thought I was a good boy in AA. But the truth was, I didn't have a higher power in my life. I'd bypassed that bit of the program somehow. I'd had one for about 18 minutes, somewhere in my second year. <laughs> But the memory had faded completely. I couldn't get my head around the idea. I couldn't get my mind around the idea of a power greater than myself. Um, they talked about amends. And I'd made a lot of amends, but um, I'd found people in AA to agree with me when I suggested that there were all sorts of people it was very it was inappropriate to go back to. And I hated sitting in meetings where people talking, talked about amends because this, this stream of faces would run through my mind of all the people I'd not gone back to. Um, I hated it in meetings when people mentioned the word honesty. You know those meetings when they mention the word honesty, they say the topic today is honesty and no one wants to share because everyone has a secret. And you know that if you share without telling the room the secret, you're a hypocrite, so no one says anything. Um, I was not comfortable at 15 years sober. And I had a rotten relationship with my mother. Um, I was tense, even more tense than today. I was tense in all sorts of ways, and there were underlying problems which just weren't going away. And. This woman in AA once said to me, around, I was around 14 years sober, she said something like, you're a perfect child of God and God forgives you for everything. And I thought, if only you knew. That doesn't apply, that's just wrong. It, it made me feel sick, the idea that that might be true. Um, and a radical idea was presented to me. They said, in step eight, there's the word all made a list of all the people we'd harmed, and in step nine, we'd amend, we, we made amends to, to such people. And they said, if you've never made amends, or at least had a go at trying to find all these people, you've never taken the steps. Um, I was told this not by someone in a local AA meeting, but on a tape by another man who'd already died by that point. I didn't know that. So this is the second time I was carried the message of AA in an unconventional way. And um, they talked about going through the big book um, and treating it like a mirror. 
just read each line and say, is that me? Because when I read it, it looks like it's talking about other people. But if I say, have I felt that? Have I done that? When I drink, once I drank after a period of, of sobriety and I didn't stop for a year and a half, yes, I have a physical craving when I start drinking. And it's not just that day, it can carry on for months and years. Yes, I have a mental obsession, the idea that this time it will be different. The, the blank spot that it talks about, the peculiar mental twist. And I've had the peculiar mental twist when alcohol seems safe. I've had the blank spot where the information just doesn't show up. And I was told by this tape to read through the book and turn every statement into a question and ask yourself, am I like that, am I like that, and I, am I like that? And I'd gone to meetings for years not knowing if I was a real alcoholic because I came to AA when I was 21 and I heard these war stories and I, I don't know if any of the war stories are true because I wasn't there. But I've never danced on tables, I've never been to Rio. There are so many stories that are just not me. But what I can tell you is that I drank a huge amount of alcohol and I wanted to die a lot. But that's not what makes me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is those two features. They hit over the head again and again and again in those first 44 pages. And I thought, I don't identify with nine out of 10 people in AA, but boy, do I identify with what they talk about in this book. Because I identified, I thought, when they started talking about a solution, is it possible that this might work for me as well? And then they said, when you get to the instructions bit, if there's an instruction, follow it. And I followed every single word of what that book said. And when I got to step nine, there were people I'd been thinking about and trying to trace in various ways for 15 years. And when I get to step eight as part of this process, bang, they're suddenly there on Facebook. I don't, one of them friended me on Facebook. I don't understand how this happens. Um, my greatest harm, sober, was to my mother. I was taught in AA very well how to behave well towards other people. I was taught how to be a good employee. I was taught how to be uh, a good son in terms of behavior at any rate. I was taught how to play by the rules of the world. But I was dead inside. And I didn't understand what life was about. And you were somewhere over there. I was vaguely aware of the existence of other people, but it, all the things that were supposed to make life wonderful were ashes in my mouth. And I would go and see my mother full of bitterness about my childhood, intellectually knowing because of therapy it wasn't her fault, but still the bitterness was there. And you can't say, be gone, bitterness. <laughs> you can't get rid of it. There is nothing you can do to change yourself if you're like me. And I got to a step eight, and I, I didn't know what the harm was. And uh, don't pray to God unless you want an answer. Don't ask a direct question and then sit in silence unless you're ready to hear what comes. And I prayed to a power greater than myself, and I said, what's my harm to my mother? And the voice said, you're a fraud. You're an actor. I knew it was true. And my mother has no inner resources. She couldn't have dealt with me saying, I'm a fraud. I've been a fraud the whole time. I've been play acting, being your son, but I didn't mean it. And I was supposed to turn up at her 80th birthday and dead inside, made most of my amends, but this one was left. And 
I said to a power greater than myself, I do not know how to make this right. There are no words that are going to work here. I checked this out with a number of people. I said, you're going to have to give this to God. You're going to have to ask God to show you how to make amends because you don't have it in you. And I knocked on the door. I was terrified. I was saying, God, show me, God, show me, God, show me. And the door opened and I didn't see my mother standing there. I saw this frail, terrified 80-year-old woman who was pleased to see her son, but frightened of the next few hours of what it was going to be. Was it going to be another of those sessions with me sitting there tensely and her crying periodically? What was it going to be on her 80th birthday? Um, she's had five kids, three are dead, one's handicapped, and then there was me. I was the only one left um, who was you know, able to be present. I saw her, and something broke. I saw who she really was for the first time in my life, and something inside me melted, and I thought, I love, I love you. And I don't know where the bitterness went, but it went, and something changed in her face, and we hugged, and nothing was said. We had a perfectly normal day. But it's been different since then, and two totally different relationships. And my other half is looking for a job somewhere else at the moment, and I'm going to stay in London, but we may have a place somewhere else. And she's terrified that I'm going to leave, but she said, I don't know what I'd do without you. And I, co I couldn't achieve this. I made the final amend around five or six years ago, and a funny thing happened. All the lights turned on, and the blanket which I'd been living under my whole life lifted, and the energy felt as though, the world felt as though it was buzzing with an energy that I didn't know was there. And I went to a meeting, and I saw people's faces for the first time, and I thought, my God, there are other people out there. <laughs> and most of them are in trouble. And I don't know how to help anyone, but I'm here, here's my story. What can you do with it? Whenever AA asks me to do anything, I say yes. Because AA has given me the ability to be alive while I'm alive. And nothing else, nothing else in my life has ever done that. Um, I made that last amend, um, and it was to someone who I was in an abusive relationship with for a number of years, which started when I was a kid and ended when I was a grown-up. And this other person was in control for the first few years of the relationship. And in the last year, I turned the tables. I retaliated. And boy, did I retaliate and do, try and do everything to destroy this person. And everyone had said, he was the abuser. You do not need to go back to him because he was the abuser. But I had done everything in my power to destroy him. And we had a very simple conversation. And um, I said, is there anything else you need to say to me? Is there any, any way in which I've affected you that you need to talk about? And he said, we loved and hated each other in equal measure. Now, it's a throwaway line. Um, and I've been told my whole life by people who I knew loved me and who I'd grown up with that I was loved. I'd never believed it. 
But he had nothing to gain at this point. I had had no idea that this person had had any feelings for me. And I had had no idea that there was anything in me that was truly lovable despite everything that I did back. And I heard this in amend after amend after amend. Nothing I can do can stop people who love me from loving me. They can see past that to something deep inside me. And that cannot be destroyed. Who I am cannot be destroyed. I have never been harmed. I have never been hurt. My interpretation of what you have done to me may have hurt me, but you never have, because you cannot harm that thing which is lovable. And I accrued all sorts of rubbish just sticking to every part of me throughout my life. And AA has got each of these little bits of rubbish to drop off. And then you realize who you are and who I am is you. I'm not this separate thing floating around, desperately trying to make a name for itself. I don't need a name anymore. I don't need stuff. I don't, I just need you. That's it. Because I've got you, I don't need to drink. Because what I know now is that drink separated me, but gave me the illusion of connection. It separated me, but it gave me the illusion of connection. All I ever wanted was to be with you. Apparently in Copenhagen this weekend. I didn't know this. I don't know what's good for me. But I do what I'm told to do in AA, and magical things happen. Um, I'm kind of done. Is that all right? Thanks very much for listening.